All right, so we are in uh, Genesis chapter one. This is the second sermon in our Genesis series. So as you turn to Genesis one, verse 26, I'm gonna pray for us. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the glory of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now you're gonna hear me beat this drum a lot in the coming weeks of this Genesis series. We're gonna keep reminding ourselves that Genesis is a story. And that doesn't make it untrue and it doesn't make it inaccurate. When we say Genesis is a story, if you can say that, Genesis is a story, it's a tongue twister. What we're doing is we're just recognizing that God chose to communicate his truth through the vehicle of a story. It's a narrative. So like any good story then, this one has characters and a setting and a plot, all of those things. So last week, the kind of introductory sermon to this series, we saw that the main character of the story is God. That's the character. The setting was the earth. It was formless and void. And then he filled it. He formed what was formless and he filled what was void. And he filled them with beauty and light and life. So that main character then is God. He is the the one whom the story is about. But the other characters introduced in this prologue to Genesis are humans. Now in our text this week, we're gonna look at the introduction of this new character and explore their character development. So with these new characters in mind, what do humans have to do with the story of Genesis? We're gonna look under four headings, God's design, God's command, God's blessing, and God's word. And I hope those four will all tie together and make sense. God's design, God's command, God's blessing, and God's word. So let's go now and read Genesis 1, 26 through verse 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of God. So let's jump into to point number one, heading number one, the God's design. So last week, uh, from kind of this overview of Genesis one, we talked about identity. And we said that we are dignified creatures made for beauty, light, and life. That's what we came to as kind of human identity out of Genesis 1. Dignified creatures made for beauty, light, and life. And the way that identity is summed up in verse 27 of chapter 1 is as the image of God. All of that is packed into those three little words, image of God. So we're going to just take a moment and ask what exactly is the image of God? In scripture, what does that mean for us? So firstly then, God's design, the image of God is what you are. It's what you are because 
because you are a human. You are created in the image of God. Therefore, no matter how you act or what you do, you are an image bearer. As long as you can say you're a human, you can say you're an image bearer of God. Now, a couple years ago, Prince Harry left his position as a senior member of the royal family in England. But no matter how far away he moves, and I think he moved to California, uh, and no matter how his values might shift away from now the king's values, or no matter who he marries or divorces or what he does, he will always be Prince Harry. That's who he is. He's royalty because he was born into it. He didn't do anything to earn royalty. And the same goes for you and me. The image of God is something you're born into. You don't earn it. And we know that the image of God remains on humanity even after sin enters the world and messes things up. We know that uh, the first instance of where we know that is Genesis 9, 6, which says, this is God speaking to Noah. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So even after wickedness had increased on the earth, sin came in and broke everything. Wickedness increased, but God said, humans are still precious to me. We still don't get to treat humans like animals. They're made in my image, even when they're wicked. Therefore, all humans are to be treated like royalty. Everyone, children, elderly, mentally handicapped, unborn, every culture, every ethnicity, royalty. We really dare not take away the dignity that God made them to have. God gave that to them. We don't earn dignity. It's a gift. It's a gift from above. So the image of God is what you are. But secondly, the image of God is also what you do. You don't earn dignity, but you can act dignified or undignified, can't you? So we are the image of God as a noun. We are the thing, the image of God, but we can verb the word as well, right? I always think of Calvin and Hobbes when I say verb as a verb. Calvin said, verbing nouns weirds words. Is that right? I feel like Nate would know that. <laughs> Is that right? Thanks, William. Verbing nouns, weirds, words. So we are the image of God, but we can also image God. We're meant to image God. Remember earlier in Genesis 1, God created the sun to rule the day. This is in day one of creation. That's not true. It was in day four. Anyway, God created the sun to rule the day and this lesser light to rule the night. So the sun is full of light. It generates light by itself. The moon's job is just to reflect that sun's light. All of the moon's light is derivative. The moon's beauty, its glory is derivative. It comes from the sun. And it's the same with you and me. We're meant to reflect God's glory and goodness. And when we do that, we are imaging God. The moon is beautiful, it really is, but only because of the sun. Its beauty gently whispers to the creatures of the night, there is a light so glorious, you can't even imagine it. 
In Exodus 34, Moses says to God, show me your glory. You show me your beauty. And God passes by him and declares his name, his goodness, his glory. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When we are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and full of love and faithfulness, then we are imaging God. That's the light we are meant to reflect. And God's glory comes into even sharper focus at the cross where Jesus embodied and displayed, enacted God's steadfast love and compassion and mercy and all of these things that are the glory of God. When he died on the cross, that was the greatest display of the glory of God the world has ever seen. It's when he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped after, Philippians 2 but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then he went even lower into death, trusting God to exalt him. When we live a cross-shaped life, trusting God with all of our exaltation, with all of our good, we put ourselves in his hands and we just go die to self for the benefit of our brothers and sisters and the people around us, then we are reflecting the light of the sun. We are imaging God. Now, all of that, the Exodus 34 glory of God and the glory of God in the cross, that's all later in the story, right? This is Genesis 1. So what do we know of God, this main character so far in the story that we are meant to image? Well, here's what we know of God. Summing it up differently than last week. God has been fruitful creating life, creating humans in his likeness, like children. God has filled his creation. Remember days one through three, he's forming creation. Days four through six, he's filling it. God has filled. God has subdued the chaos and the darkness and God has all the dominion. So when he says to the birds and and the, the fish, be fruitful and multiply, they do it because what he says happens, he has dominion. And now God has created humans in his image and says, do the work I've been doing, follow me, reflect this light. So God's design is for us to be the image of God and to do the image of God. So that's point number one. Point number two is God's command. So that was verses 26 and 27, where he says, let's make man in our image. And after his image, he created mankind. Now verse 28, he gives them marching orders. Let's read verse 28 again. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is, a, this is really the first command from God to humans in the Bible. It's easy to think that the first command is uh, about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or whatever. But the first command that God gives in the story of Genesis 1 is be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion. That's 
what he wants his image bearers to do. And so there are several words of command here, several imperatives, but there's really two aspects of this command. The first one is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So two fruit trees alone can cross-pollinate, bear fruit, and make a forest. That's what they're meant to do. And God wants all the world to be an orchard, a wonderful display of his glory and his goodness. Or to put it the way that we've been putting it, God wants to multiply and fill the earth with more reflectors of his light and his glory. So remember in day three of the creation story, God formed the dry land out of these chaos waters. Now here on day six, he's filling that dry land with human life and he's inviting humans to participate in that work by multiplying. He's inviting us in. Here's how Habakkuk puts it in Habakkuk 2.14. He says, for the earth, the land will be filled with what? with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's always been the whole point of everything. Humans are to be fruitful, multiply and fill so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers water. That's the first aspect then of the command, fill the earth with the glory of God by imaging God properly and multiplying. Now, the second aspect of the command is to subdue the earth and have dominion over the realms of the sky, land, and sea. And I just wanna notice a couple things about these words subdue and dominion because they don't sound great to our ears, right? These aren't like nice fluffy words, but it's not really how they're used in the Bible. So I just wanna give some biblical scope and context for subdue and dominion. Now, when this word subdue is used in the Old Testament and it's used quite a number of times, it basically means this, where the land is full of disorder and chaos, go bring order and peace. So when we bought our house, it was covered in poison ivy in the back. It needed to be subdued, not to oppress it and like dig everything up and make it into some industrial whatever. The point was make it a place where human life can flourish by getting rid of what's dangerous and disorderly and chaotic. So for instance, in Joshua 18, one, this is after the people of God have gone into the promised land and essentially dispelled the warring factions that were threatening the people. It says, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. It's the ordering and preparing of the land for the flourishing of God's people. That's what God is commanding us to do when he says, subdue the earth. Now the word dominion makes me think of the word dominate and that doesn't feel good. So what's up with that word? Well, I think I could sum it up accurately by saying the word dominion in the Old Testament is used not for dominate, but more like the idea of servant leadership. Servant leadership. When God tells us to have dominion, he's saying, use all the faculties and resources, all of your authority, everything you've got to bless and care for the people in your charge. 
That's what real dominion looks like. A shepherd is a shepherd only because of the flock that they provide and care for. And we're to have shepherd-like dominion over creation. It's been entrusted to us to care for, not to dominate and oppress, but to cause it to flourish. It's like servant leadership. So the point is, God is determined to make this world into his kingdom, full of goodness and glory. This is a kingdom of God text, friends. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all these things. Jesus just calls that the kingdom of God in the gospels. That's what we're talking about. The good kingdom in which is the only place humans can actually flourish. So when we pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're asking him to do is make his image bearers fruitful, fill the earth with reflectors of his glory who care for all creation in a way that reflects the goodness and kindness of God. All of that is backfilled into your kingdom come. That's what we're asking for. The earth to be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. God has determined, he is committed to filling the earth with his glory and goodness through humans. He doesn't need to. He could do it however he wants, right? But he chose humans. So you could say this is a a story about human flourishing, or you could say it's a story about the kingdom of God on earth. And you'd be right both times because of the same thing. There is no human flourishing outside the kingdom of God, none. It might look like flourishing for a minute, but it won't last. Human flourishing and the kingdom of God are tied inherently together. And that's why we can say with our catechism last week, what is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own, but belong to God. It's his kingdom and our good. So that's God's design and God's command. Now, number three is God's blessing. This is, this is the good part. It's all good, but this is my favorite part. So God didn't just give us a command. He didn't just tell us what to do. First, he gave us a blessing. God's first word to humanity isn't do this, it's blessing. That's awesome. Genesis 1.28, the beginning says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, etc." Now, this is important when God blesses His word creates the reality that he speaks, okay? The word of God does not return void. God's word is powerful and effective. It does what it says. We call this performative speech, right? So, um, so far in Genesis one, when, when God speaks, what he says happens immediately, right? And God said, let there be light, light, light was. It's stunning in the Hebrew. It's like exist light and existed light. It's incredible. He blessed the fish and the birds, told them to be fruitful and multiply. And all of a sudden the sea and the skies are teeming with life. But now he's created humans, the people through whom he has determined to bring his good kingdom on the earth to fill the earth with his glory. And he's gifted them the freedom of choice somehow. 
So when he commands the humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue and have dominion, they have the choice to obey or not. That's new in our story. Nothing else has been given a choice. If God had merely commanded us these things, we would be in a lot of trouble. But the command followed the blessing. He blessed us first. And the blessing is God's promise that he will do it. God says, I'm gonna do it, now you do it. I said in a minute ago that uh, God's word is powerful and effective. Well, our words are like that as well, but a lot less powerful. So if I said to one of my kids, go clean your room, a new reality has just been created, right? Let's say it's William. I'm gonna pick on you, dude. So if I say, William, go clean your room. If he cleans, he's obedient. There's this new possibility of obedience in the world now. And if he doesn't clean, there's this new possibility of disobedience. But either way, my words did something in the real world. The word left my mouth and a new reality was created in some sense. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says something like, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, do not covet. And then it awoke all kinds of covetousness in me. Words like that create new realities in our experience, in our existence. They affect real change. And the blessing is God's assurance that the room will get cleaned one way or another. Humans will do it and God will do it. So that's the first aspect of God's blessing is that it's a commitment that God will do it. But the second is that God must do it because we know the rest of the story, don't we? In just one, one and a half chapters, we're gonna mess this all up. Sin enters the world, mars the image of God beyond all recognition, not by losing what we are, but by our failure to image God by displaying his glory through our obedience. We'll get into this more in a couple of weeks when we study Genesis 3, but when Adam and Eve sinned, every single aspect of the command we've just been looking at was messed up and frustrated. So their ability to be fruitful and multiply will be frustrated by the relational tension between man and woman that sin introduces. Their ability to fill the land will be frustrated by their exile out of the garden. Their ability to subdue will be messed up by the earth fighting back with thorns and thistles and eventually subduing them in death. And their ability to have dominion over all the beasts is seriously messed up when a beast of the field slithers up and has dominion over them. Sin messed up this whole thing. We are already, just by chapter three, unable to keep God's commands. But there's hope because of the blessing because God blessed them and God said to them, the promise that God will do it. Now we understand that God must do it. If it's to be done, he's gonna have to be the one to do it. If the kingdom of God is to spread over the earth, if the earth is to be full of the knowledge of the glory of God, then God must do it because we cannot do it, not without him. Which leads us to the last heading. Number four is God's word. Essentially, God has promised human obedience in such a way that we can say God did it and humans did it, 
right? So when he blessed them and then gave them a command, he's not saying, you do this, but if you don't do it, I'll pick up the slack. No, he was saying humans will multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion. That will be true. My kingdom will come through humans. I blessed them and then I commanded them. But how can that be? And the answer to that conundrum is the incarnation of Jesus. Come on, it's the incarnation in Genesis 1. That's so cool. I love this. So imagine, this is an old tried sermon illustration, but it gets the point across. Imagine that an author writes a story and the beginning goes something like, once upon a time, everything was good until it wasn't. And then he writes the ending, which is, and Adam saved the day by putting everything to rights and everyone lived happily ever after. But in the middle of the story, his main character, Adam, just refuses to participate. You have to stretch your imagination on this one. So what does the author do? He writes himself into the story as a second Adam. So you can say at the end, Adam saved the day, put everything to rights, and everyone lived happily ever after. The gospel of John begins like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Then in verse verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. God himself, the creator of all the things, became a human. Praise God. Yeah, seriously. What an answer to that conundrum. In Jesus, who is the word of God made flesh, we have the one and only way that man can perfectly obey the command to bring God's kingdom to earth and to fill the earth with God's glory. Jesus fulfills the command. And Jesus fulfills the blessing. Even way back in Genesis 1, God's good plan to save the world was already underway. And not only that, but Jesus is the only human who ever has or ever can perfectly image God. We all are the image of God, but only Jesus images God perfectly. John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Those Greek translated words, grace and truth, translate steadfast love and faithfulness in Exodus 34. It's the two markers of the very glory of Yahweh himself is what Jesus is full of. He's perfectly reflecting God's light. Finally, a human who images God And the rest of the New Testament continues to teach that Jesus is the image of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Christ is the image of God. He just says it plainly. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Man. So at the dawn of creation, God tells his people, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And now 
the word becomes flesh, dies, raises back to life. And at the dawn of new creation, Matthew 28, he says to his people, his new creation image bearers, who can finally start to show the world what God is like. Because of Jesus, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." just going to say it plainly. Genesis 1.28 is a great commission. (laughs) This passage reflects that passage deeply. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. New creation humans, imaging God, reflecting the glory and goodness of God. Jesus will see it done. All right, sermons are supposed to have application. So what does this mean for us today? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what it means. You can never know true flourishing outside of Christ. A part of me almost wishes I could say otherwise. But God has designed, God who made everything has designed this world in such a way that because he is the source of light, he is the source of all blessing. We sang it in our doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because of that, we can't have anything good outside of him. We cannot flourish apart from Christ. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's two things. First, you get to be fishers of men. Remember when Jesus says that to Peter, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What's he talking about? (laughs) You take the the gospel of Jesus in your hand and you go and you bring men and women from the realm of the chaos waters into the realm of the dry land where there's light and life. That's what we get to do be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is it talking about having kids? Sure. Some of us will have children and we will raise them up to know and love Jesus. And that is partially what is being addressed. That's for some of us. Here's what's for all of us Christ followers. We're fishers of men. We make disciples. We go into the nations, baptizing and teaching them. That's for all of us. That's the first thing. The second thing that this means for us is you get to step into whatever chaos and darkness is near you and bring peace and order and beauty and light and life, the life of Christ. You are an emissary of God's light into a dark world. It might just mean making a meal for your neighbor or putting your hand on someone's shoulder and praying for them or just telling somebody they matter to you. It can look like a lot of things, but it's very dignified. It's acting like royalty to go and treat other people like royalty. 
And however you do it, know this, Jesus not only commanded you to do it, but he blessed you. He blessed you with the authority of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. When I say the authority, I mean the one who has authority is with you and has commissioned you. He said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the one through whom everything was made. We praise you for being the one for whom everything was made. And we praise you as our source of all blessing and goodness. We acknowledge the reality that you teach that there is no good apart from you. And we pray, Lord, we pray together now, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we prepare our hearts to receive your supper, we ask that we would not do so in an unworthy manner. We ask that we would also not be hesitant and sluggish to come to the table to receive grace. We're reminded that we don't earn this table and this visible sermon and edible sermon. We don't earn this by good behavior. You earned it for us and gave it to us as a gift. So the only requisite, the prerequisite to coming to this meal is that we just receive it. We receive you and we love you. Help us to receive you now by faith. Amen. Amen.